This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. We're just going to open it up. I think that that was the, the spirit of just opening it up to the questions between and amongst all of us. Um, I'm not going to do much in the way of introductions, um, uh, but I will say something about Ruth Ozeki, who we haven't met yet. In, well, some of us haven't met. We've met Celine and, and Daryl from yesterday. Uh, and Ruth, I'm sad to say, is leaving us after four wonderful weeks on campus, which she's been as hospitable as I hope we've been hospitable yeah. toward her. Uh, and uh, she's going to, she was originally going to show part of, of, of a film that many of us have seen, Having the Bones, but she's decided to do something different. And I just want to read a short, um, some short excerpts from a review that was um, done by Victor Bergen of Body of Correspondence, which is um, subtitled The Postmortem Menage a Trois. Quote, the epistolatory narrative is as old as the novel. Body of correspondence is all the more impressive for the originality and success with which it transposes the form to the screen. For the most part, the, for the film is formally spare and emotionally understated. On the surface, the film offers as, uh, itself as a simple celebration of love, both agape and eros between two women, a love which endures beyond the grave. This simple and sentimental story is sealed in the best tradition of the Hollywood romance with a stagey and otherwise redundant stage kiss, I don't know if you agree. There is, however, the, a complexity to the film which disturbs this reassuring surface. The dark side of the otherwise charming relationship between the women lies precisely in the exclusivity of that same relationship, an unrelenting narcissism which allows no concern for any world beyond the circle of their mutual self-conscious, uh, their mutual self-reflections. Um, so I think that, that each of the films will really engage us in different ways, but in ways that I think uh, have will illuminate a lot of the concerns that we've been um, uh, voicing and um, discussing in the last, last couple of days. So without any further ado, I think we'll start with Daryl, Celine, Ruth, and um, Daryl, would you like to say a few words about what you're doing? Uh, some of you may know that uh, a couple of years ago I, I wrote a theoretical essay, sort of a takeoff on um, the canonical Amy Tan. Uh, the title of the theoretical essay was called The Joy Fuck Club which talks about the necessity of uh, visualizing Asian-American erotica because of all the different historical, political, uh, legal, juridical uh, attacks, assaults on our community for the past 100 years. Um, I think I surprised not a few people by actually uh, making the film subsequently titled Skin on Skin. It's a 40-minute feature uh, that presents an Asian-American man and an Asian-American woman doing the nasty, to put it, more, you know, as politely as I can. By the way, if you're offended by, by explicit sexuality and there are still a few people out there like that, then, you know, no harm, no foul. If you want to leave the room, that's fine. But we're not going to see that today. We're not going to see the skin flick. The skin flick was my attempt to be Russell Simmons. I wanted to have my own Asian-American uh, culture empire by commodifying different aspects of Asian-American popular culture so I could reinvest those profits into my own Asian-American uh, television, satellite, cable, radio, entertainment empire, hence the Russell Simmons connection, also clothing line. You know, you heard of Fat Farm, I, I was going to go for Rice Farm, okay? So I, I scaled this down, you know, Peter Fang, Professor Peter Fang, 
Uh, I looked at my Eisenstein, right, you know, in his theoretical principles, he says you can recut anything and generate a whole slew of different meanings. So I took that to heart. I've been thinking about that for 20 years. Uh, so I took a, a skin flick, which is, is purely for profit, so I can build the basis, the infrastructure of this Asian American media empire, because the networks, ladies and gentlemen, are not going to do it for us. We have to do it for us, ourselves, right? It's the FUBU concept, except I call it FABA, because it's for Asians, by Asians. Got it? So, um, so I decided to recut it, a la Eisenstein. I, I hate to <laughs> put myself in, in that same category. So I scaled it down, and I made a radically uh, political, uh, politicized uh, cut of it, about seven, eight minutes long, and I call it yellow cost. And I call it yellow cost because uh, the Holocaust of the uh, latter 19th century and throughout uh, much of the 20th century, there's something like 30 million Asian people who have been maimed, murdered, killed by uh, primarily the U.S. military, beginning, as I stated in my talk yesterday, with the war against civilians in the Philippines, uh, 200,000, maybe up to 1 million people. And it's been that way ever since. So it's been a sort of a slow motion Holocaust, or what I call uh, a yellow cost. And my thesis, my argument yesterday, was that that has had a, a defining uh, impact on Asian American sexuality, a defining one. It's warped, it's distorted, it's uh, created havoc in, in many different ways. Uh, so I wanted to start a discussion on this. So I put together this edit. And by the way, you young people here, um, anybody can do this. You can do this in your bedroom. I have a, uh, a small project studio. I've got the Macintosh, the G4. I've got the Pro Tools software, Final Cut Pro, you know, and the mini DV camera. That's all you need to get into business. And you're in the game, right? So, um, and two cameras, you know, maybe three cameras if you really want to be sophisticated. And you can cut all that stuff in your bedroom now and uh, put it online or distribute however you like. Pardon me? Or your, or your kitchen, kitchen whatever your favorite workspace may be. You know, you're, you know you've got your laptops now. So uh, I cut this uh, film, Yolokos, and I put uh, historical text, crawling, uh, crawl text in the bottom to kind of clash against the pure, unalloyed pleasure that these two Asian-American people are having to create some sort of uh, dissonance between the visual image and the, the script. Um, I'm not going to repeat what I was you know, going through yesterday. I, I, today, I, I'd just like to uh, preface this with, with a little bit of the strictly film, the filmic aspects of, of the uh, piece, uh, particularly the sound. The sound is very important, and, and no one ever asks me about that, except last quarter in, in my Asian American the media class, uh, one student who happened to be a musician for the first time talked about the sound. Well, what I did was, um, just like DJs, a lot of DJs do this these days, or remix artists, um, I sampled a lot of sounds from different media. Uh, you'll notice that there's a gradual crescendo of these human cries. Uh, that was taken from uh, a news broadcast of a uh, the aftermath of a subway uh, tragedy, a fire that took place, I think it was in Seoul, Korea, maybe like three years ago. So I took that, and I just kind of cut and paste and kind of let it build. And these are the cries of all the dead Asian souls and Asian American souls that have been uh, the victims of American genocide over the past 100 years. And undergirding that, you'll hear this really low, sort of subsonic almost tone, which I laid out there. It, goes, it runs all the way through to kind of ground it and give it some weight and gravity. And then on top of that, uh, the second part of the film, um, I get into some sort of uh, guitar uh, ambient sound. It's, it's a suspended chord, which is it's just kind of hanging there. It's not resolved. It's begging for resolution, which comes at the end. 
it's you know it's the uh, the uh, the money shot as we call it right that's that's when the court actually resolved um, but leading up to that uh, Peter Fang could maybe appreciate this since he's a jazz freak but uh, tell me if I did it right Peter uh, I did sort of a Coltrane Alabama prayer type deal Alabama was a tune that Coltrane wrote after four young girls were uh, incinerated after some white supremacists bombed their church. They were caught in there. That's Alabama. So I tried to do a tenor saxophone Alabama type feel to that. Um, and then I'm not going to leave you in a state of helplessness because we're about solutions here. We're not about victimage. Asian American history is not about just survival. It's about prevailing over these circumstances against these uh, unspeakable acts committed against our communities globally as well as in the United States. So I'm not going to leave you at that level. I move in from the prayer, from the Alabama, from John Coltrane, and we move into uh, James Brown. The saxophone gets funky. It gets into more like Amicio Parker, or as funky as, I, as I'm able to be, you know. So, so I did all the music. Did all the, the, the I've been playing music for you know since I was eight years old, and and I decided to bring it all together. Brought the intellectual history. Some critic of, of mine of this film said that all these historical facts were inaccurate and distorted, but he's wrong. I, did, I actually did my homework. So we have all those elements going on here. It's only a seven-minute film, but you'd probably have to watch it, oh, at least twice to get all of these different elements uh, together because most, for most people, they're looking at just the raw sexuality part of it. So there's all these different clashes of different uh, uh, systems of signification, the aural, the visual, the textual and all that, and the acting, uh, combined with the, the most popular art around today in America, which is pornography, right? As um, Professor Palumbalu was saying, it's, it's, it's mainstream. It's about mainstream as you can get these days. All the big corporations are involved with it. It makes more money than the Major League Baseball, uh, mainstream films, and Broadway combined. It's a huge business online, wherever you might look. So I decided to, you know, I'm a student of popular culture. I want to get paid. I want to start the Asian American media empire. So I wanted to bring it all together. So let's take a look. And then you're free to attack me.
the, uh, <laughs> the uh, next film is mine, and I actually began this project while I was um, finishing my PhD here in NPL. And um, this is a visualization of the problem that my, this is a visualization, a moving image visualization of the problem that I'm engaging in my book, which is coming out at the end of the year. Um, from Duke, so watch out for it on Amazon.com or your local bookstore. And, um, <clears throat> and it's basically, you know, the hypersexuality of Asian American women as uh, a kind of racial formation. You you can't um, you can't understand the racialization of Asian women without looking at their sexualization and vice versa. And so I needed to come up with a kind of visual language to figure out what I was doing intellectually in, in the more traditional way of exploring a research problem. And um, I wanted to break down the grammar and vocabulary of how the sexualization of Asian women were secured. And so I revisited um, these emblematic scenes that established this perverse sexuality for Asian women and asked these actresses to reenact them and then to perform them in a different way. And then after that, I wanted to take these fantastic images and put them on the streets of San Francisco in order to bring into collision representation and some semblance of the real. And then after that, I asked these actresses to dissect their experience. So enjoy. What kind of a house did you say? A boarding house. Oh. I'm sure you're very respectable, madam. I must confess, I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house, Mrs. Harrison. I'm sure you're very respectable, ma'am. I must confess, I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house, Mrs. Hennigan. And the wrong place, prefet as. It's a very dull character. I mean, whenever you see her on the screen, it's almost exactly the same every single time. So it doesn't really give you a sense of how deep the character can go. I felt a lot of tension up my back, actually, my shoulders. I feel like I'm always like uh, tensing up my shoulders and kind of not slouching, but just in this defensive mode all the time. And I think that very much resonates with the character that she plays. I'm sure you're very respectable, ma'am. I must confess, I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house, Mrs. Hennigan. The Marlena Dietrich way was actually a lot easier to play because it was, again, more human. It was more um, of a way that a normal person would react. It was like kind, not distant or cold, but um, if you notice in anime Wong style, she doesn't even blink. You're looking for girlfriend? I hear you rent room for a whole month. You want me to be your regular girlfriend? I like, but can't afford. Too bad, because I'm very popular. Everybody say, where is Susie for gonna say? Sure you not want me for permanent girlfriend? I like, but can't afford. Too bad, because I'm very popular. Everybody say, where's Susie for goodness sake? You sure you not want me for permanent girlfriend? All the work that I did for it, I didn't really 
go and do homework on, you know, going to the streets and looking at prostitutes yeah. because it's a total different thing. It's not that same way. There isn't that sadness in her eyes. There isn't that anger, that resentment. It's more, you know, oh, I'm falling in love, dream look. Or the accent, it was just strange because it doesn't sound, I mean, I know what a Chinese accent sounds like because my mom has one. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't sound anything like that. It's just bad grammar. And I felt really uncomfortable with it. And I mean, yeah, it was just really uncomfortable. Like, it didn't make me feel like, you know, authentic at all. And I, I had a problem with it. It just, it made me feel kind of foolish. I like, but can't afford. Too bad, because I'm very popular. Everybody say, where's Susie for goodness sake? You sure you don't want me for permanent girlfriend? In playing it more serious, it just brings home to the fact that she doesn't have too many options, you know? It's him or it's just some other sailor guy. He's leaving and she's kind of staying in the bar like he's left her there, like she can't leave, you know? I mean, in, in a sense, it was a lot, it was a lot more real for me, mm-hmm. a lot more sad. Alleviate pain. 
can't even measure in an unconscious. I tried to do it where I was really pulsed by it, and it's something that I had to do, to, you know, maybe to survive or whatnot. And it was just, you know, like I'm just saying it because it's a protocol every day, the daily thing to say when you see a customer, and it's really something that I'm not <laughs> wanting to do, and I'm just repulsed by it, and, and try to be detached. Um, by the situation. Mm -hmm. I had to actually think of somebody that would, that actually lives their lives doing things like this and really affected me. And the world is very dark. You don't really know what's going through her head. And um, she has a very mysterious quality to her, which I think I really think I was intrigued by. And the thing that I noticed most of all is that her movements are so rigid. Everything was almost pre-planned. Like she knew what she was going to do. She wasn't, there was no flailing about, no like extra movements to like fill the space. It was like she had, a, she had that direction. She had the moment. She knew what she was doing. And she didn't, she went all out. She just continued follow through. There was no holding back. There was no maybe she it this way. Um, and I think that was one of the things that I tried to She was always holding herself, holding her hands to her body. And that's something that I'm not used to at all. I'm used to like very wild, weird things. And, and she was just very closed. It was very very much like she was on the defense all the time. And I think I can understand that considering her situation of being uh, the black sheep in the Asian community and just being not accepted in the white, predominantly white film community. And she, it was like she had to prove something to herself. The one thing that I, I got most was fear. Misplacement, misunderstanding. I feel I, when I was walking down the streets and I walked, I felt misunderstood. I felt misplaced, I felt awkward. I'm sure that's exactly how she felt too. And, um, <laughs> one thing that I noticed was that people weren't coming up to me with intrigue. They were trying to actually stay away from me. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I was, you know, dressed up, but um, I would think that in San Francisco they used to do sort of things, and it's sort of odd, like people running around. But um, no one really wanted. To, I don't think anyone wanted to come up to me or talk to me. And if anything, it was more of a novelty. Like, oh, this little China China girl in a trolley in San Francisco. How perfect! It was actually kind of hard running around the city like that because you know people are thinking, well, okay, this girl's crazy. I think the best one was awkward. Um, and I think that's one thing that Anime Wong was so thought during her time. Very awkward. Without having any acceptance anywhere. I was all dressed up and we're in Chinatown and you know just walking around as Suzy Wong. For one, I found it really difficult to remember to always kind of be poised and it was and I mean I would Honestly, sometimes I did forget. Cause she, and to her, I'm sure it was just like second nature, just to always have this graceful walk where she's perfect posture and just walking like a jazz walk, or you know that she does. And um, the, it was kind of, it was fun. You know, it was fun to kind of have this bigger than life presence. Well, what I felt like uh, dressed in the chunk song was a bit. 
because it's it's something that is, is traditional in you know, Chinese a tr traditional Chinese dress. But I think when I went into public with it, I felt weird. Because all of a sudden, it was almost like I was made to feel weird. I mean, the reactions that I got from you know women in you know, like this is kind of like, oh, okay. And I don't know if it's because of the makeup, because I had a lot of makeup on that day, too. But from then, I felt really uncomfortable. Because, you know, I had people coming up and all of a sudden saying, like, oh, Mimi Pao, and things like that. And I just thought, why can't I just, you know, be dressed the way I want, you know, the way I want in a traditional Chinese outfit? And why can't that just be like, oh, she's wearing a traditional gown? You know, I don't think people will go up to other races if they're wearing their traditional, you know, wear and try to speak to them in their language. You know, I think it's bizarre. And so, and then a lot of, you know, comments like, Baby, or <laughs> things like that it made me feel kind of uncomfortable, and that's that. Seems like Lucy Liu is like the only Asian American that's you know making it, I guess, in the industry, which is great. I think and it opens a lot of doors, definitely. Um, it makes me think like, wow, she, you know, she did it. So yeah, I think you know, I think I can do it too. I think it's easy for us, for you to fall into that, like, oh, I'm Asian, so I'm going to be obstacles, and so before I should even try, or, you know, or, or like, um, sort of a defeatist attitude to, to it, because just because you're Asian. But I think also you can turn it around and use it as a um, sort of a, as a, a, a positive thing. I definitely think it's really to you who you are, it's unique to you, and you should be really, um, capitalize on it, <laughs> on your uniqueness and your human ways. And so I think it's that, uh, you know, her attitude and going, you know, in the whole film industry, and I think it's a, it's a good attitude. So, um, what happened to the rest of the film is that... There's a really horrible representation of Asian women in Hollywood. Here's a dragon lady, and then a prostitute, and then a matrix. And then the other woman said, oh, they just represent different kinds of beauty. They're just so wonderful that we've been beautiful throughout the ages. <laughs> and then the last person said, actually, this can be an index of different kinds of strength. You know, there's just kind of you know, moral puritanical strength that Anna Wong has, and then there's just kind of whip smart, you know, <laughs> strength that Lucy has. Anyway, so um, as you can see, this is kind of, um, I, I work in this, genre that you, I think, can call experimental ethnography. But it's an experimental ethnography not only of communities, but also of the grammar of film itself. And so I'm hoping that experimental film can say something about the process of what it means to know the other, to represent the other, and vice versa. What can ethnography teach us about experimenting and playing with genres so that it can um, represent the complexity of these experiences and our relationships with representation? Uh, hi. <laughs> um, the film I'm going to show, I'm going to show an 18-minute
clip of um, a film that David uh, read a little bit about. Um, it's called Body of Correspondence, a Postmortem Ménage à Trois. And it's a film that I made um, in 1994 with, um, a, in collaboration with a friend of mine named Marina Zerko. So it's a film that the two of us conceived of, we wrote, we produced, we directed. Um, uh, and it was a, it, it, it's the culmination of a longer work that started out as a text and photo project. Um, and, and let me back up a little bit further. Um, we, uh, it's been a while since I've actually talked about this, but one of the things that, that Marina and I were trying to do is we were trying to make work um, for very little money. And so what we started out doing, she lived in Williamsburg and I lived in, um, in Manhattan, and we started writing letters to each other. Um, the idea in the letters was that um, they would be based very, very loosely on certain kinds of autobiographical fact. Okay. For example, our ethnicity was uh, part of what we considered as being autobiographical fact. Um, but when we wrote the letters, when we wrote a letter to the other person, we could write it at any age. So we were speculating, in fact, that the two of us had been friends throughout our lifetimes, okay. starting from a very young age when we started to be pen pals, and you know, up until the time to our death as well as past our death. Okay, um, and so the letters the letters span these this this these range of about say eighty something years. Um, you could write a letter, for example, I could write a letter to Marina, say at the age of eight, okay, and then she could write back to me at any age at all. However, in her letter back to me, she would have to include something that reflected the letter that I sent to her. So it could be some kind of image, it could be some kind of historical event, it could be just anything that would in fact connect the two letters. Right. And so we did this back and forth for about, oh I don't know, about, about a year or two, and came up with at the end of it this, this body of correspondence. At which point we started to, we went to the Banff Center for the Arts, we got a, um, we got a grant to go there, uh, a fellowship as part of their um, and they used to do these 10-week uh, residencies. And this one was called The Instability of the Feminist Subject. Um, and so this seemed like a perfect place to really talk about and work with this material that we generated. And so we started to create photographs around the um, the kinds of the kinds of things that were mentioned in the letters. Okay, so we started to collect objects. We started to collect sort of um, just ephemera that would serve in some way to amplify as well as to illustrate the, the material in the letters. And so we came up with this photography and text projects uh, project that that uh, where we had this this body of correspondence as well as uh, a series of, of uh, photographs. Of course, what was interesting was that in the process of making the photographs. Um, this other character came into play who was a kind of a combination of myself and Marina, a kind of amalgamation, if you will, who was the archivist, okay? The person who's actually manipulating the material, okay? And so from this collaboration, you know, creating the photographs, this, this third character of the archivist sort of came into being. And um, we, we worked with this material as a, so now it's a, it's a text and photograph um, and we, we did slides, um, and, and we started to work with the material as a performance piece, um, where we would sit, Marina and I would sit on opposite sides of the room at desks with gooseneck lamps, and we would read the letters back and forth to each other and then show slides, okay? Um, around this time, the Independent Television Service, um, which is, uh, was a, um, uh, it, it is an organization um, 
funded by the, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to um, to uh, sort of increase alternative um, work that's film work that's being shown on television. Um, they they had an uh, an outreach, and so we submitted the project to that, and we got we got. Um, for what to us was a substantial amount of money to to uh, to turn this into a film. So that's what I'm going to show you today, and I'll just read you a little bit of the description um, of it. Um, Body of Correspondence is a tale of ultimate voyeurism, the story of an archivist obsessed with two dead women whose letters he curates and finally embodies. Transgressing the boundaries of traditional morality, sexuality, history, and even genre, the film seeks new ground where horror can live beside humor and camp beside convention. Two anonymous women, known only by their initials N and O, have been lifelong friends, principally through their written correspondence. After their deaths, a box containing their letters, as well as their personal effects, falls into the hands of a bumbling archivist named Thomas. He opens the box to catalog its contents, and the two now vividly re-embodied ghosts lead the hapless archivist to abandon his objective stance for a more subjective, if somewhat unsettling, participation in their history. Um, so let's see if there's anything else that I need to tell you. I'm, I'm cutting in sort of in the, in the middle where Thomas is, has, uh, has taken the box and is uh, driving through the Catskills um, looking for a place to process its contents. And um, I think there's probably more stuff that I've forgotten to tell you, but you'll catch on. Oh, I should also mention that the, um, that the two women, um, when they're reading the letters, they're they're, uh, they start out reading letters that are younger. So the letters actually in the film run chronologically. So when, you, when they start out, they're reading letters at a younger age, and then they slowly, the letters slowly get older and older. So in fact, the, the letters that Marina and I wrote back and forth to each other, even though they were written in an achronological sequence, we did then restore the chronology. So I think that should probably do it. I still to this day do not know what drew me to the box. Perhaps it was boredom. For weeks I have been driving through the monochromatic landscape of a small town nature circuit. Inside the large box, 
the two smaller boxes. Middle them up. Each contained a collection of papers. Careful to know the original order, which in this case was seemingly random. I began reading the documents. At the bottom of the large box was a jumble of objects, an odd assortment of ephemera, which I began to catalog. Quite frankly, as the material had no value or historical interest, the project was beginning to bore me. I felt once or twice of simply tossing it in a less trash can. But then, one night, as I was finishing up the catalog of a family, I happened to lay out several items on the desktop. Something about the grouping appealed to me. And it did the way the light from the Christmas lamp struck the arrangement. Often make photographic records, but the impulse I had at this moment was different somehow. I felt compelled to photograph these objects not as evidence, but as illustration. An illustration of what? I don't know. Something not evident, entirely narrative. I emptied the shoeboxes onto the bed and started to interfile and reorder documents to violate the two fundamental principles of my profession. I had to keep reminding myself that no one cared, that everybody was dead. These things were meaningless unless I interfered. I was aware too of a concurrent sense of power. Here, um, thanks for the photo. You look so innocent, but I know you're not. Colin sent you this picture of me, but I'm afraid you'll think I'm degenerate. You know, you're the only person I can be totally honest with. I think it's because I've never met you. I guess I could now that you go to school just a few hours away. Everything in this house is crazy. My mother had cancer this summer and they cut her breast off. She had a fake one made with bits inside her bra, but she won't talk about it. And I guess it's a problem when she has to wear her gowns on stage. Anyway, weird thing has been happening for two weeks. I noticed a guy on the fourth floor of the building across the street.
to wrap up here. Um, so it's kind of like a Pandora's box, box idea, that somehow by getting hold of these letters and you know, opening them, opening the boxes, and starting to interfile the letters, that the archivist has sort of brought these two women back to life. But at the same time, of course, the women are very, um, they, they understand their function in the archivist's life, and so that they are simultaneously manipulating him and driving him insane. And, it gets from here, it just gets, it goes from bad to worse. <laughs> so in, in fact, they have this kind of reach that, that extends beyond the work. And that's the part. such a great, I felt like that one really tapped into an, an Asian woman's sexuality and her even talking about how she's been objectified and then just showing it from her own self, like what, what it really is about. That was awesome. Thank you. It, one of the most interesting things was to, uh, you know, what was to, it, it was a multi-layered you know, piece there at the end when the the actress's name is um, the actor's name is Ching Valdezaran, and she's yeah. a absolutely stunning actress. And we had an amazing time, um, you know, making the film. And um, but you know, what's interesting is that the you know the the sexuality that that she's you know that that she's working with here is quite complex because the two women when they were girls had this interaction. Um, you know, the the, the sort of you know, it, it's, it's a very complex, it's sort of spherically complex, no matter how you turn it. And she really, I mean, Chang had a wonderful way of sort of working with that and interpreting that. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, of course, you know, even though she's dead, the, the, the concept is that she's dead, of course, but she's, you know, she's also aware of, you know, what she's doing to this archivist in, in the motel room. And she's also describing a scene, though, where she's, in this kind of intermediate situation in Japan as um, you know, a, a Japanese-American or as an Asian-American um, who is sort of not at home there, but is also not at home. So in, you know, in, in a way, she's objectifying the monk, but you know, it turns around as well. So you know, it, it, it's, no matter how you turn it, it's got something yeah. you know, kind of going on. It's great because it starts out with this innocence of their first encounter together, her realizing later on her objectification in that process, and then her almost predatory nature. 
later on to sort of empower herself in that situation. Yeah. So that was, I loved that complexity that came through really well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really apologize for the sound. I mean, that was, I, I don't know what happened. Hmm. Question is for Celine. The um, your the anime Wong actor. Her Orientalist comment about anime Wong being mysterious was that your script or her opinion? That's my first question. And then the Nancy Kwan actor. Uh, did you direct her to act so apprehensive in the streets, or again was that her take on what you wanted her to do? Um, there, um, those were interviews actually. So it's whatever she said, whatever her take was on it. And it's funny, you know, because. In terms of the creative decision of what to include or not to include, this was a long process, and a lot of it I, didn't in, didn't shoot. You know, so much of this was done at A3C, you know, over there, and the casting was done in the Modern Thought and Literature Conference Room. We had, I had hired um, an undergraduate to do, you know, to to solicit and intern, you know, um, inter interview, you know, casting agencies in San Francisco and talk about their racial casting practices, and then. Based on that work, we had an open call, and then all over 100 actors came to MTL, and we auditioned them, and just tried to find actresses who had an ability to to talk about um, their work, you know, and um, to a capability of kind of describing it as analytically as possible. And some of it, and I feel like you know, the the method of this film is so much about my work as a professor, you know, like how do I bring together my work as a professor and as a filmmaker, and it was about putting these actors in a classroom, you know, kind of generating discussion from them and having them talk about what they were doing. And um, in terms of, so that's the first part of your question. And the second part is what we were actually trying to do with the street scenes um, was to imagine different kinds of endings to these movies. So, you know, anime Wong kind of riding, get it, we were kind of reenacting her entry into the train of Shanghai Express and trying to figure out where, where would she go after she killed Chang you know, that biracial guy who ended up kidnapping everybody. And, um, and then for Susie Wong, that was just so funny to me that, you know, she had just, it just ran out of kind of enjoyment for her walking out into the street. No matter what I would do, she just was so upset. I said, well, why can't you just have fun? But she just didn't want to do it. And, but Lucy, the Lucy Liu actress did. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, the beginning at the beginning of the film there are several instances where there's a flashbulb which sort of signals the presence signal the presence I didn't know whether that was calculated because a signal the presence of a third party in a way that the rest of the film didn't have the other one was the line that's probably the most controversial uh, which was love and lust are rooted in racism and what you sort of unpack well, that and also respond to the flash well, it was yeah, a, that was a sort of incidental or the flash is yeah they were incidental we were just taking still photos during the course of the uh, shooting so that we can get some extra mileage out and maybe we could sell them online or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there, were, there was no aesthetic okay. consideration there. I should have probably edited that frame out, right? But maybe I got lazy. Uh, the, the phrase, uh, what, love and lust are rooted in racism? Yeah, I think to a, to a, a large degree, uh, the way race relations are in the United States, the, the legacy of white supremacy and white racism is very much embedded uh, into our behavior, into our, into our soul, if you want to put it in metaphysical terms. Uh, and I, I put that in there intentionally as a provocative statement to uh, reinforce amongst the, the audience that, that uh, these notions of, uh, of affect 
are not innate to us. They are socialized. They have these, uh, these historical, material, political, military roots. Um, uh, that's the short version of my response. I have a question. <laughs> um, Daryl, I've seen the larger work, and mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to ask you, um, because the, the woman is a professional porn actress. Yes. And the man is not. Could you no. describe that ca casting decision? Uh, <laughs> well, female Asian American adult actresses are very easy to find because as those of you who uh, look at that material, uh, they're the number one attraction so far as non-white women. It's Asian. And, I, and again, I think it has to do with the Asian colonial history. So she was very easy. We just put out a call, and uh, any number of people will, will respond. In fact, after this shoot here, I think she had another one. I think it was a girl-girl shoot. Uh, so far as Chun-Li is um, concerned, he, he's the male person. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I wrote the, the text in order to actually uh, coincide with her history. She is Cambodian-American, and her family indeed were blown into America as Cambodian refugees. Chun-Li indeed is an orphan, Korean orphan, raised by a benevolent white family in the Midwest, mm -hmm. torn out of his mother's arms, right? Uh, he was an amateur, and there, there are no um, regularly working Asian-American porn actors, so I had to beat the bushes, so to speak, to find this person. We put out the call on, uh, I think it was Craigslist. He responded. He lives out in Minnesota. Uh, he grew up in an all-white community, and he, he got involved in the project as a way, as a means of working through his own conflicted sexuality. Uh, and he was happy to participate. He wanted to work for free, but I know I insisted, <laughs> please take this honorarium. Especially, I don't want you to sue me later if this really blows up. Um, no, that, that's not really, truly the reason. So um, that's how the casting decisions came out. Uh, the, the main uh, uh, purpose was to have an Asian American man, Asian American woman. I thought that alone would would be a revelation for most people. It's the first time I've heard the word honorarium used to describe ah. payment for <laughs> <laughs> services record. That's, that's great. That's the academic that's in me, yeah. <laughs> right. I have a question for Ruth. Um, I was interested in your use of the horror genre, and I wanted to see if you could speak a little bit about what your what your intentions were there, and why you thought that the referencing sort of horror was, um, you know, sort of important for this story about memory and 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 archives, and um, what you thought the connection was there, what you were trying to bring out there. It's a complex question. I, I think that um, the practical reason that um, we decided to use and to reference the horror genre is, is, is actually very, it's very personal. Um, Marina and I met um, on the set of a film, it was the first uh, film that, that either of us had ever worked on, um, and we were art directors um, for a movie called Matt Riker Mutant Hunt, and, um, and this was in New York. <laughs> And it was, um, it was a film that was, uh, it was produced by a company called Tyson Entertainment, and the director was a guy named uh, Tim Kincaid, who might be better known to some of you as Joe Gage. Do you, anybody know Joe Gage? He's a, he's a, um, 
he was sort of a cult uh, male porn director um, in, in uh, Greenwich Village in uh, the 1970s. And he, this <laughs> Matt Riker mutant hunt was his bid for legitimacy. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and so Marina and I art directed that, and that was the first time we'd met. You know, we met on set and we, we worked together. Um, and uh, we went on to do a whole series of horror films. Um, the second one was a film called Breeders. Um, the next one was a film called Robot Holocaust, uh, Necropolis. We did, we did a whole bunch of these. And um, I think that one of the reasons that we chose to, I mean, so, so obviously we had this shared history and, and this kind of, you know, slightly campy, but also kind of a disturbed relationship to the genre. Um, we, I, I think that during the making of those films, you know, one of the things about, about the horror genre is that it, it, it's very uh, exploitative towards women. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was to take that and turn it around a little bit and see if there was a way to, you know, sort of reference the horror genre without, you know, in, in different kinds of ways. So, um, you know, I, I, Especially, you know, sort of in areas of, of you know, I mean, it, it's two women coming back from the grave, you know. So, I mean, the, the, the trope here is, is, a, is a very standard sort of horror film trope. So, you know, but, but we wanted to sort of work with that in a different way. Um, and so that's, you know, th that's, that's kind of why. So, yeah. It was sort of like this idea of possession, right? right? And I think we also felt really bad about the, the films that we made, actually. I mean, I think we felt a little guilty about them. You know, they were, they were kind of horrible films, you know. And we might have felt like we just, you know, something needed to be done. There needed to be an intervention into the genre somehow. So, yeah. Oh, both. They were aesthetically horrendous. I mean, they were, they were sins against the, you know, they were, they were you know, <laughs> sins against, you know, cinematic aesthetic. But it was... Um, but also, they were politically, like, kind of, you know, not great. I mean, they, they, not a great, good message to young women, you know, not that they'd see them, but, you know, still, it was not... Uh, the fact that we'd contributed at all was a little bit kind of like, ew. You know? This question is for Daryl. Um, I know many people confuse the documentary about your making of Skin on Skin, Masters of the Pillow with Skin on Skin, and what, what are your distribution plans for Skin on Skin? Skin on Skin, I'm going to combine on a larger DVD. Skin on Skin is uh, 40, 45 minutes long. Um, so I'll have a, a second project coming up. Uh, it's sort of a, uh, an homage to uh, uh, Angelina Jolie, uh, who was alluded to in the earlier film. Um, I read in the, uh, the post or something, or the, what is it, one of the tabloids that you pick up in the supermarket. Uh, but uh, Jenny Shimizu is trying to get back with uh, Angelina Jolie and kind of pry apart her and uh, Brad Trick. I mean, I'm sorry, Brad Pitt. Uh, but um, so in a, as a tribute to her, I'm going to make a, a film called uh, Girl, Girl, Uninterrupted. So just a slightly different take. And that'll be on one DVD. Comment that you know the two letters of the witness no right and a lot of the yes. film is about rebuffing yeah. different kinds of attempts to sort of insinuate but all three the films are about in a sense sort of warding off or denying certain kinds of interpretive moves right the the porn right I mean is is undercut by this I'm really glad you made those comments about the soundtrack but also the text right 
which you know creates sort of multi-directionality. And the same thing with Celine's, you know, wonderful film. And then this, I was wondering if you could start talking about how you were operating in terms of, you know, because there are certain habits of reading and interpretation that you're obviously, as, as the archivist is delving into all of this, that you're sort of, you're mm -hmm. about, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, film work. yeah. Film to do that. I, I think it's, it's this idea, you know, any kind of notion of, of you know, objectivity that we can look at, we can, we can look at someone else's history and mm. correctly interpret it without, without, you know, um, a, a real infusion of, of, you know, the subjective. And so, you know, it, it's a way of, you know, these two women, um, you know, actively refusing to be identified. And there's a, there's a little uh, speech in the, in the, at the beginning of the film where the archivist expresses his frustration at the fact that he cannot uncover the identities of these women. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, not to mention the fact that then they completely take over and, and, and kind of ruin his life. Um, so, you know, so, uh, you know, on a very obvious level, it's about, you know, this idea of, of you know, uh, the, the male archivist, you know, and the male gaze, you know, sort of as applied to these two women, but it all goes terribly wrong. Um, and so, you know, so there's, there's certainly that, uh, you know, it's a, rea it's a reaction to that. But, you know, I, I think it's also just, I mean, as a documentarian, as a documentary filmmaker, um, because that's what I did for, for many years, it, it's not as simple, you, you can't draw the lines as simply as saying this is a gender issue, this is a race issue, this is a, you know, whatever. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's spherically complex. And so I think that's what we were trying to work with in the, in the film as well, to try to create a, a you know, a portrait of, of these three people that was interactive and yet, you know, behaved in ways that, that uh, you know, that, that you might not expect. So um, in that sense, it was, yeah, it was, it was an attempt to sort of complexify. Yeah. What seem what are apparent, you know, what apparently are quite simple relationships, but in fact, of course, as we know, are, they're not. Yeah. Can you repeat the question, David? Oh, about this idea of rebuffing or negating certain kinds of interpretive strategies. Right. You you you, you manipulate. You know, you get guess hooked by showing the Hollywood version, and then you sort of undercut it in an interesting way. Then you have another moment where the actresses actually come out of character, and then. So I'm just wondering if if you want to talk a little bit of how you how you sort of. We're playing with ways in which you know we were seduced by certain images and then tracked into well, it's the usual you know play on that. But then having the actors actually step out of character and talk to the camera was, was something quite interesting. I thought. Right, right, right. Yes. I mean, I, yes. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> I think that's. I mean, that's what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about like what genre is this? You know. Um, Increasingly, as I, I actually, I think this is part of a something that I'm trying to do in my curriculum as well. There's a new class that I'm developing called, um, it, well, it's called experimental ethnography, and it's it's so much about you know different kinds of social experiences and what kinds of you know filmic methods can we use to represent those experiences and how can these particular experiences transform these traditional filmic methods, and so. When we when we come up with you know our own research problems like what kind of method is is best to solve that problem, and so for me this one was very much about you know responding to that genre of um, Asian American feminist films that are so much about condemning the image and deciding already what they mean you know for everybody that there's some kind of 
um, universal singular meaning of sexual representation, and that equation tends to be a totalizing one. You know, sex is so negative and so damaging in terms of race, and that's all it's doing. But I'm I'm trying to open up, you know, different kinds of interpretations and to return us to the role of the actor and to kind of mm -hmm. break down, you know, the authorial power of Asian American women actors, no matter how minute they may be in terms of measuring some kind of agency and some kind of power, they still need to be accounted for in any kind of analysis of the power of these representations. Asian on Asian experience, I guess I just read her, I read her actions is just so porn and I don't have enough experience watching porn. I guess the whole point isn't really character development, but um, <laughs> I just felt like, I felt like he was actually like, holy crap, wow. You know, and that grin at the end of it was totally like, yeah, you know, and it was like, he could have been any white guy, you know, and I feel like I would have rather had her grin at the end be like, yeah, check out this hot, sexy Asian guy I got. But it just felt like there wasn't enough. I didn't get that. I didn't get it as this experience of two lovers so much as just the sex. And I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously coming from a not really understanding porn point of view, I guess. But um, I, I just, I really enjoyed seeing the text underneath. And I felt like that, you know, all of the points you were trying to make, that was coming through a little bit. but. Um, I guess it would have just been, I felt like he was sort of like, he didn't, he didn't activate enough. Like he wasn't participating enough. Like it was all her in the beginning and then, then he just kind of did his thing in the end. I don't know. Maybe I'm not explaining myself very well, but I guess as a woman watching it, I just felt like it was not intended for a woman's enjoyment experience. But, um, <laughs> but that's just personal. I've shown it my my students uh, in various venues. You know, it's several of them. Women, women enjoy it. I mean, it's not it's not geared towards sexual enjoyment for the first place. In a certain sense, I'm negating it or denying it by bringing these other elements, such as the text. Uh, this is an excerpt from a larger work where we see more reciprocity, should we say, <laughs> between the man and the woman. Uh, so far as the grin at the end, uh, our model there, our actor, our actress was grinning all the way through, yeah. if you know what I'm saying. Because I'm, I'm all for orgasmic equality, so you know? She, I just felt like she was doing her role very well. I don't know. I guess it, mm -hmm. I just really felt that she sure. was a porn actress. It's a genre yeah. film. It's a, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a genre film and a counter genre film yeah. at, the same, at the same time. So, so I use elements of that yeah. and, as well as the others. But yeah, that'd be an interesting thing to explore. I guess I would like to see that. I like what you're trying to do. I appreciate it. Thank you. I think this is a general question for all the uh, panelists. Um, I, I guess I'm curious about hearing how, in your own work, you negotiate the tension between the restricted audience for experimentalism, or the the kind of restriction of the audience that experimentalism brings with it, in relation to the the more kind of transformative goal that the, 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 the films obviously have. So 
you know, basically the tension between popularity and um, experimentalism, avant-garde, however it is you want to you think about it. I stopped making films and I write novels now. <laughs> because the, re the I, I found that um, experimental films were very expensive to make and um, the distribution is very difficult and um, I ran out of money and I wrote a novel and suddenly there was, you know, the reach was so much greater that um, I sort of defaulted into that, which is not to say that I won't go back to making experimental films. I think that there's something that, ex that film can do that no other, you know, that no other medium can. Um, but it was, it was a little bit frustrating. Um, and I think that's just built into the nature of film distribution. I also think that will change when um, broadband becomes broader. So I think that there's, you know, that this, this will change. Um, there's a much, you know, that, that we will be able, we'll have a carrying capacity. And there, I think there are always going to be audiences for experimental work. It's just a question of finding them. And the internet is so brilliant for that. So I, I think that will change. Um, I think it's very difficult to make judgments about which pursuits should be worthwhile depending on, you know, the numbers of people who are seeing it. I really love what Trinti Minha says when she says it's not about targeting an audience, but building an audience every time you, know, you make something. And I have all kinds of hopes about it because I think there are people like me and students that I have who increasingly cannot live a full life if you're not going to pay attention to the various ways you're expressing your responses or the way you think. You know, for me, I feel, you know, I have, after having worked you know, professionally as a production designer, I felt like I was dead when I couldn't talk about my work analytically with the people that I was making it with, although I was giving so much of my life to that kind of work. And then, so, which is why I came to Stanford and I decided to read a lot in the library. But then I felt like that was also, I was also half alive doing that because I couldn't produce. And so I think there are very many people who are like me, and increasingly my students are like this. They're trying to learn how to speak eloquently, you know, in, the, in terms of traditional scholarship, but also learning how to, you know, respond to the very dramatic, emotional, visual ways they're um, reacting to material that they're reading. And so I feel like my, my, I feel very fortunate that I'm at UC Santa Barbara that recognizes both, you know, traditional scholarship as well as helping students to be able to, you know, learn how to do Final Cut Pro, Pro Tools, you know, and they're really savvy, you know, and uh, to encourage that. And so, and I'm very thankful that, you know, the civil rights movement produced places like the Center for Asian American Media, Women Make Movies, right? And um, to continue to, you know, feed um, those institutions that are around precisely to, you know, nurture these responses, these voices, yeah. The perennial problem for people who want to produce uh, experimental films or politically incorrect uh, movies is one of financing, as, as Ruth uh, alludes to. So in, in pursuing that, I, I uh, simply looked around for the most profitable, attractive genre around, which is pornography. And uh, that's how I cut the Gordian knot, so to speak, on how to generate some income so I can actually do these types of projects. Cause I don't want inscribed on my tombstone, Hamamoto, he was a pornographer as such. You know, that's, I don't really aspire to that. But uh, you know, I'm Asian American, and historically, we do whatever we need to do in order to get the job done. So in order to get the message out about Asian American history, culture, society, to build this 
Yen, in, Yen uh, TV Network, Yellow Entertainment Network TV. I'll do the porn because that's going to pay the bills. I'm not going to depend on the NEH, which depends on the political climate, on who gets funded or not. You know, I'm actually fun following the Stanford model, how professors collaborate with their, their bright graduate students and create empires like Hewlett Packard. That's, that's truly my inspiration. Celine's my empire. Okay, there you go. <laughs> One day there will be a building, the Perennius uh, Hall, you know. But, so you have to be uh, imaginative. I'm Asian American, and the only way we've been able to get over in this society is to be entrepreneurial instead of just being content to be intellectual coolies, you know, wherever we are. So I want to get paid. It's very simple. <laughs> so I'm going to go where the money is. That, too, is Asian America. Stephen's question and, and, and your response uh, indicate that that uh, David's comment was that the these genres the, these these films all have in common that they're about um, advancing interpretive uh, strategies or, or negating them. But it, it strikes me that they that they're all about um, um, remobilizing genres in different ways and rediscovering text. I mean, what is the epistolary novel but uh, a remobilization of, of texts, right? But also calling into question the act of encountering the text, right? In the classic realist novel, everything is, st is staged in front of you and the kind of, um, the, the enunciation is, is, not, is not problematized. The, the reason why the text comes in front of you is not problematized, right? But whereas the epistolary novel kind of puts in front of you as itself a question, the Blair Witch Project puts itself in front of you as a question. How are these, how, are, how is this footage discovered, right? Um, and and uh, Celine's piece also, right? It, it's, it's about remobilizing the texts and, and the question that they're directed at are kind of frustrations with the actors. Well, why aren't the actors expressing the political attitude that I want them to express about the text, right? And why isn't the, why isn't the woman uh, in the pornographic film, why isn't she, exp I mean, so the, these, these films all implicate us in different ways by turning our desires for the texts back on us. And this is why I think that the, the genre, popular versus experimental, uh, question is so important because it, it highlights this, uh, this, the way that the desires about texts circulate um, and only by, I think, straddling that line does, is that circuit completed. Because if it's, if it's wholly a popular text, uh, then, then we conceptualize it as, as a circuit in which the, the money goes back to the producers. And if it's an experimental text, we conceptualize it as uh, an epiphany in the minds of the viewers, but I think this is a, a kind of a, uh, a biofeedback kind of a much more of a uh, uh, the, the circuit doesn't stop at one end or the other. It, it it continually builds and it implicates the filmmakers politically and implicates the audiences politically, uh, and in a way that is simultaneously pleasurable, intellectually pleasurable. Uh, right in the way that in Laura Mulvey's critique of visual pleasure narrative cinema, in, in, in her time that she's originally writing her first draft of it in the mid-70s, she can only conceive of a feminist response to Hollywood cinema as being one, the only response is unpleasure. Right? There's no way for her to imagine in her initial draft. Later on, she goes on to revise it, and, not a, and people should look more at her later works. Right? But um, she revises it to account for the idea of the possibility of women's pleasure, but initially the only thing she could imagine is creating intellectual unpleasure. 
Um, and I think these, these works all combine this idea of, of intellectual pleasure, but also visceral physical pleasure, and, and say that it's, you, we can't draw this, this distinction between kind of unthinking, I mean, th that's the other thing about Daryl's love and lust or racial or racist, right, is, is to say that it's not, it's, that to me is a way of saying you can't divide intellect from emotion. It's not, they're not different things. They are Im implicated things. Not a question, sorry. <laughs> uh, Ruth, actually, I love the the thing that you I'm so glad that you gave the background thing about how this piece came to be and the just the image of kind of this archivist kind of emerging in the in the organization of the, the objects and the and the letters and I'm curious about um, about so I'm, I'm really into the figure of the archivist actually um, I think that's a really interesting idea and did you f I guess I would just want want you to talk more about that because it seems interesting that in I mean maybe I'm putting too much into this but that in trying to make a story out of this set of a chronologic letters and objects it becomes I mean it creates a certain not just the placeholder of the archivist but a certain archivist who in the film becomes a white man and I'm wondering, was that a, a <coughs> conscious choice, a particular choice, and is that something saying something about the way narrative, the, the how certain narratives have to get made legible, or um, was it a default thing? No, I, yes, is the answer to the question. I think I think that um, you know, but at the same time. Um, <coughs> One of the things, you know, what, what was interesting about the emergence of the archivist character was that actually he's a character who emerges from the heads of a Jewish American woman and an Asian, a Japanese American woman, right? Um, it, it, yeah, and so he is a he is a projection, right? Um, and we, you know, our our fictionalized, you know, filmic selves, I, you know, have our way with him, you know. So it's a revenge film. You know, in that in that respect, you know. So it, it was a very, you know. So obviously, we're going to make him a white guy because I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, it it, it 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 we had to. I mean, it was it, you know, we didn't really have a, a choice about that. But I also think that you know, I mean, you know, as filmmakers, you know, who controls the image? You know, I mean, who controls the archives? As you know, historians, who controls the archives? You know. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this was something that I thought a lot about when I was working on um, having the bones. Um, wait a minute, I just lost my thought. Um, yes, it, it's this idea that as a young Japanese-American, half-Japanese, half-American girl growing up um, in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, um, on the Yale campus, right, um, you know, I, I, and I should also say it's not just a half Japanese, half uh, American. Um, it, it's half Japanese, half anthropologist, <laughs> right? Um, because my dad was an anthropologist, okay? And, and, and at Yale at that time, this is the 1950s, you know, in the 1960s, all of the anthropologists were white guys, right? And many of the anthropologists had oriental wives, 
Right. And in fact, there was a joke amongst the anthropologists and their wives at Yale was that in order to get tenure in the anthropology department, you had to have an oriental wife. <laughs> right. And there was a strange little subset then of children like myself who were half Asian and half anthropologist. Right. <laughs> so, you know, having said all of that, you know, I, I was very aware growing up as a little child that my Asian side, the Asian side, the Asian half, was what was worth looking at and what was worth studying, right, from the eyes of the white anthropologists, right. And so um, I, I read a story the other day here, which was, which was kind of about this, called The Anthropologist Kid. Um, and it's coming out um, in a it's coming out in a nice um, anthology published by Norton um, called Mixed, and it's an anthology of writing by fiction by Asian, you know, ha mixed race, mixed heritage uh, writers, and it's coming out in uh, by Norton in August, I think. Mm -hmm. But so you know, so this idea of the way that that I sort of have internalized that you know that gaze and um, and see sort of my you know, my ethnic half, of course, in, you know, being that it's, it's you know, that, that this is, you know, America. Look at that, you know, um, and exoticize that. And as, as, that I am as guilty as anyone else of, of, you know, sort of inhabiting that gaze, right? And this is something that when I was making, um, uh, uh, having the bones, I really played on that. Because there's a lot of imagery in there that is absolutely improbable, but it's very beautiful and exotic. Right, and um, and so it's playing off of this idea of like what feels, you know, what looks and feels exotic, what looks and feels ethnic, you know, and is it? So, um, all of which to go back to, yeah, my first answer, which was yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> David, may I ask a question? I just wanted to ask a question of how many uh, undergraduates are here, graduate students in the house today, by show of hands? Students? No? Yourself? I, I'm just trying to do an informal marketing survey while I'm at it, because, you know, I'm a hustler. I'm an entrepreneur. But uh, are any of you interested in, in uh, reading or purchasing an anthology uh, of Asian American erotica written by Asian American studies professors? Would, would you buy such a book? <laughs> Would you? You buy professor. I want Professor Palumbalu <laughs> to contribute. So everybody on this panel, everybody in this audience who's in Asian American studies, I am soliciting you to contribute to a, a written format, right? To Asian American erotica. I think it would be a breakthrough. Karen, do you want to? Will you commit to that? Well, do your best. Okay. No, no, no censorship. No. Okay. I'm curious. I'm, curi I'm serious. I, I'd like to put an anthology together like that and attach our names to it, not pseudonyms. Yeah. Anyway. No, it's more like they pay us not to write it. You know, <laughs> it's like the Marx Brothers. Um, how about a couple more questions? Because we have to earn our keep. We have a reception with. I think is there a reception out there yet? Has, has, has the reception? It is arriving, so we can't even have it yet. So we need to talk a little bit more. There's going to be wine, cheese, all sorts of good stuff. Yeah. But I actually, I wanted to just tell uh, Peter um, some, a little piece of, of 
kind of information which you might not know, but in the Iron Chef clip that you screened yesterday, right, um, do you remember Okada-san? Okada-san was one of the judges. He's half, right? He's, a, he's one of the, the um, you know, the, the iconic, you know, sort of first, uh, you know, half Caucasian, half Japanese actors to sort of break through in... What? Uh, he plays samurai a lot. He plays a lot of different kinds of uh, kinds of roles. But I thought it was interesting that, given the nature of your talk, yeah. you know that that in fact it was the you know that that you happened to find the show with the one you yeah. know sort of no, I, I, representative I, I, from you know. Yeah. Japanese. Chinese. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, and obviously, the show is about cultural mixing in in. in in, in different ways. Yes, so. yes, yes, it is in an in a interesting way. Yeah. Yes, yes, Well, I think on the program I was supposed to make some comments. Yeah, I think but, you But, you know, I think that, you know, Peter's um, remark a few lines back about this idea of, well, what I was calling resistance, denial, you know, deferral or channeling in different directions. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, from both the films today and our discussion today, earlier today and then yesterday, um, really shows what the, the interstitial, you know, qualities of, of, of culture and history and politics and aesthetics and sexuality um, and the power of film to um, manipulate our habits of reading uh, that emanate from all sorts of different areas and to um, both for good and bad. And I think it's, it's a medium that's, that, that we have to respect an awful lot and also be very cautious of. And I really appreciate um, everybody who's come as a presenter, as a filmmaker, and as an audience member um, and helped us generate this um, symposium. And um, just want to thank you all. It's the first one we've had. I hope we have others, and I think that we'll take notes and think of something else to do. So thank you very much. <laughs>